What's up, guys? We're going to do this podcast. My name is Salman Ali, at Salman Ali NBA on Twitter. Here joined by Ben DuBose of USA Today Sports. Ben, how you doing? Doing well, Salman. How are you? I'm doing all right. So we have some news to get into today, and we have an extended debate. So we'll save the debate till the end and start with the news. Uh, so basically, the Rockets waived Daniel House and signed Garrison Matthews on Friday. We'll start with the sad part before we get to the cool part of this. So I have a feeling we're probably on the same wavelength here, but Daniel House is probably one of the coolest two-way player success stories we've had so far. Agree. Like, he was born in Houston. He grew up here. He played basketball at Hightower High School. Like, I know Hightower High School. Some of my closest friends went to Hightower High School. Like, that was pretty cool to me. But anyways, he, he turns down multiple offers from prestigious college basketball programs to go play for my alma mater in the University of Houston. And obviously, he doesn't stay here. He goes to A&M, and then he bounces around the league for a little bit. And he ends up on the freaking Rockets like six years later. Yep. Like the, the guy grew up a Rockets fan. I've had conversations with him about being a, a fan during the Steve Francis and Yao Ming years. And the Rockets are, you know, like they're, they're in his blood. And he actually becomes like a starting caliber player while, he's with the, while the team's at the top of the league. And it's just insane. You couldn't have scripted a better story. My favorite article that I ever wrote was like a profile on House and his deep connections to the city, his play, obviously, and his connection to. And that's another insane element. Like he's had this long standing relationship with one of the senior coaches on the staff. Like Lucas knew him since he was a kid. Go all all is well until the Orlando bubble incident. And mm-hmm. we don't need to get into the details of that. What matters is that he screwed up and he screwed mm-hmm. up big time. And I said this at the time, um, it's the kind of mistake that causes the organization and locker room to like lose trust in you. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to his credit, he did own up to it and he apologized for it. And the Rockets were able to move past it. But he was never really the same player again. Like his confidence and swagger on the court were just shot. Like And the fan base turned against him. Mm-hmm. And then he gets waived to make space for another two-way player that's become a starting caliber player for Houston. Yeah. Just the cruelest form of NBA irony. And then I go on Twitter, and this is the perfect opportunity for a fan of the team to be like, you know what? He, was, he wasn't my favorite player, but he, he bled Houston. And I wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors. And there was some of that. But I also saw a lot of people just dunking on him on the way out. Mm-hmm. And it really bothered me. Because I thought that was low, and it should be really hard for a Rockets fan to hate Daniel House. It should be really difficult uh, because of his deep connections to the city. And I just wanted to get that off my chest. Yeah, I thought your tweet hit the nail on the head when it comes to the low blow element of some of the responses. Because if his teammates and bosses at Toyota Center could get over the incident and what happened then it's not up to us or it shouldn't be to hold those grudges. They were the ones directly affected. And unfortunately, I do think that played a role in the way the last season plus went. And just looking at some of the combative back and forth that he had on social media, it it always felt like even if on a personal level, he got past what happened in Orlando and was able to move forward, it felt like there was always something hanging over the relationship between him and the fans. And I think it would be silly to think that that didn't trickle into at least a little bit the confidence, the swagger, as you said, that he plays with on the court. It always felt like he was trying to hit a grand slam, to use a baseball analogy, rather than just um, hit a single up the middle, draw a walk, something to keep the rally going, so to speak. I always felt like he was trying to make up for everything. And perhaps it's not even something he was aware of. It could be subconscious, but 
whatever the case, the swagger, the confidence, it never seemed the same in the two seasons after, even though he did apologize and the team, it wasn't like they were holding it over his head. I just think that it took and will take him moving to a different uniform to unlock what we saw before. And that's why I'm honestly bullish on what could happen if he hooks on with a contender. We'll see what happens. Obviously, Brooklyn has a wave of COVID issues right now. But I think there's a lot of situations where if you put Daniel House in there and you don't have the baggage of his Houston tenure, then you can potentially unlock the guy that was a pretty good role player and a really heck of a success story. really as recently what's crazy the bubble season isn't even a year and a half old now so i think that version of daniel house is still in there it sucks that it ended this way but i hope that we have a house renaissance somewhere else i agree i think there's still a really good basketball player in there i think there's still a good role player in there and you know we you talked about the swagger and stuff like that was such a big element of how he played the game like he became this ball handler as a role player on a team with james harden and chris paul and he continued that when Russell Westbrook was on the team. Like, that's really hard to do, to be like a secondary ball maker, ball handler, when those two guys are on the floor. And he did that. And he was a good one. And he was helpful to their causes. And, like, he had the step back jumper in his game. Like, he, he, he you know, just had a bunch of confidence in the way he played. And he lost some of that uh, after the bubble incident. And it, it did feel like he was overthinking everything he said he did on the court. Uh, he talked about some of that in his postgame pressers, like how he – Sometimes he was just overthinking the way he played. And, you know, like it became really sad because he started off media day again this season talking about like his past and trying to move on from it. And um, you could just tell it it stuck with them. And I I really I'm I'm rooting for him, man. I I want him to land on another team uh, before the playoff deadline and be a contributor for them because that would be the coolest story. So just so you guys understand what's going on here, as Ben and I were doing the podcast, we were having really difficulty hearing each other on the application we were recording with. So we went ahead and changed it to a phone interview. And thankfully, all the audio we were recording up until that point got saved. So you're hearing everything in its entirety. We're just having difficulty hearing each other. But um, yeah, the rest of the podcast is over the phone. Yeah, I think everyone should be. It sucks how the bubble incident went down and obviously some of the back and forths on social media or suboptimal, but at the end of the day, he bleeds Houston. He wanted this to work. And as Steven Silas said, he was one of the only two guys that started the tenure with Steven Silas. Well, I guess David Nwaba did as well, but Nwaba wasn't playing at that point. He signed just before the bubble so the Rockets could have his rights. But yeah, it sucks it didn't end that the way anyone wanted it to. But at the end of the day, he was a good role player. He's a success story in terms of the Rockets developing internally. That's something the second half of the 2010s they did very, very little of. Daniel House Jr. was a clear exception to that. So I'm going to choose, by and large, to remember him as a success story. Certainly, there's always going to be the what-if about the bubble and a bit of untapped potential that I think probably resulted from that. But by and large, when you consider the investment cost and how they got him, I think it's hard to say that the good doesn't outweigh the bad. Yeah, there's still a good basketball player in there. I, I'm confident in that. Um, so let's talk about the cool part of the story. Garrison Matthews. Yep. So uh, this is going to be a little bit long, but I want to explain his story because it's pretty damn cool. So he goes undrafted in 2019, signs a two-way contract with the Washington Wizards, plays about 20 games with the Wizards, like not many minutes, like less than like 15 a game. And then actually, you know, the Wizards do decide to bring him back in twenty in 2020, but not on a standard NBA deal, on another two-way contract. And then he really starts to pop. 
he actually gets to the point where he's starting games for Washington, plays about 70 games for the Wizards, and now you figure, okay, they're going to convert him now. But no, they actually extend a qualifying offer to him and make him a restricted free agency for about six days before pulling the offer completely and making him unrestricted. So Washington basically gave up on him. And which, you know, you figure is immensely frustrating for him considering he was starting games for them. But anyways, like he, he signs this training camp deal with the Celtics and the Celtics aren't fans. They waive him after about two weeks and the Rockets claim, claim him off of waivers from that training camp deal. And then they convert him to get this, his third two-way contract. And what's surprising is we learned yesterday that Matthews was so frustrated that he had to be sold by his agent to sign the two-way contract. He was actually considering like quitting basketball and doing something else. But his agent sells him on the idea of this being his last chance to get a starter, a standard NBA deal. So he reluctantly takes it. And so listen, like you don't need me to explain the rest. The Rockets make him a starter after a bad injury spell. He completely opens up the floor for Houston on offense with his three-point shooting, sparks this seven-game winning streak, and we're here now like they signed him to a four-year 8.2 million dollar deal that this season is guaranteed the next three seasons are not and in fact the final year is a team option so this was slightly more than a minimum but i think this is a this was still a nice piece of business on houston's part and i think it's a good deal for both parties frankly uh they they basically created an asset out of a roster spot yeah for sure quite frankly i'm surprised that the guarantee is as little as it is for just one year when he first started the terms, the four years, uh, $8.2 million from Tim McMahon, I would have guessed that at least the first two years would have been guaranteed. But it's a reminder that at the end of the day, it is a pretty small sample. This run of 9-4 and four in the last 13 games, look, it's 13 games, which is like one-sixth or even less than that, actually, of one regular season. So it is pretty small in the grand scheme. We'll see how much of it holds. But, yeah, I mean, not only does he space the floor, but he's got that Cheryl Green ability to – pull the trigger very quickly, which unlocks so much in regards to your spacing when a guy doesn't have to have a long wind up. And even if he's not set, he's able to shoot at any point. He also, speaking of Gerald Green, reminds me of Gerald from the standpoint that there's absolutely no fear. We've seen that in the biggest moments in the fourth quarter, he has no hesitation about pulling the trigger. And that's a very valuable role player. Not going to be more than that, but I think it's someone that, be it as a starter, off the bench, we've heard that when everyone's healthy, they plan on starting Eric Gordon at the three and bringing Matthews off the bench. But regardless, he looks like a clear rotation player, and he has the skill set that, assuming the shooting numbers are legitimate, and I don't see any reason why they would not be because they line up with what he did the first two years in Washington. When I saw his numbers, once the Rockets claimed him as two-way, I looked up his numbers the first two years on pretty high volume, shooting nearly 39% from three. I could not believe that he was available in a league that values shooting to that extent. A guy that has solid size at six foot six for a wing player. That's the quintessential type of guy. You know, they show his shot chart all the time in terms of, you know, it's all at the rim or threes. He fits the modern NBA like a glove. And so I guess it's the small sample size, but yeah, it's definitely a big win for Rafael Stone that a guy that's, and I suppose, you know, when you consider the, the lengths to which he has come, almost giving up basketball altogether in the offseason to this, I guess it explains why he would take, you know, see $2 million as a guarantee, just that in and of itself being a huge deal. But, yeah, it's hard not to see it as a win for the Rockets, given the terms barely above the league minimum and under club control for four years. It's a great job of, you know, making something out of nothing, as you said, with, with regards to that two-way spot that previously belonged to Anthony Lamb. 
before they claimed him on it. It's just a fantastic job by Raphael Stone. And at the same time, it's tough to say that it's a bad deal for Matthews, too, when you consider two months ago he was in a just a completely different world. Yeah, it almost seems like the guy shoots better on contested three-pointers yep. than like yep. regular three-pointers. It's 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 strange. He has that like J.R. Smith confidence. Like I that's that's the closest comparison I can think of in terms of the shot making that and the shot difficulty. Like he's he's running off of screens, but like sometimes he'll come off the screen and he's still not open. And he'll shoot the three anyways. It's just like, yep. like, like, why? Why would you do that? Uh, other than like supreme confidence, and you can see yep. that supreme confidence like rubbing off on like Armani Brooks. Like Armani Brooks, I feel like has benefited from Garrison Matthews being on the team because he's starting to take more three pointers and be like, being like, it. like I'm a shooter. Like I, I need yeah. to, I, I need to take three pointers and like his volume has gone up and like the entire team is feeding off Garrison Matthews like his energy he's not a good defender but his his energy is good enough and like he tries hard enough like draws the charges and stuff like yeah. that to where you can get away with him on the floor. Yeah, the charges make up for his liabilities in terms of not being a especially strong guy in the upper body. He moves fine laterally, but definitely not super well. But yeah, the charges make up for that in a big way. And yeah, I agree. He seems to be such a good fit from a chemistry perspective. And I was just going to say, I agree with you completely about Romani. It seems that once he's seen the Garrison Matthews template, you can see the light bulb going off in Armani's head that, hey, this can work for me too. I don't think his release is quite as quick as Garrison's, but it's close. And yeah, there's been a positive overlap, I think, of just Armani seeing, hey, if this guy with his profile can make it work the way he has, there's no reason why I can't do the same thing. Yeah, and really the difference there is basically just it's just size and fearlessness. Mm-hmm. That that that's the only difference between the two players. Like they're both like awesome three point shooters. It's just yeah. Garrison's just does not care uh, that he's playing against some of the best players on the planet. And it sometimes yeah. it sometimes it feels like Armani is. And you know he he's got he's got height on him as well, obviously. But like Garrison's made it work for him. And listen, we all knew this was going to happen. Matthews was going to get this deal. Uh, it was just a matter of when and how because they didn't have any roster spots. Like Houston surveyed the market for Daniel House, didn't see any appetizing offers because his trade value was at rock bottom, and they decided to pull the trigger and wave House, presumably so they can jump on Trevlin Queen uh, to use that open two way contract on. Yeah, and by the way, we should point out with regards to dumping House. I'm a big believer in what Raphael Stone is doing with regards to repairing relationships. I shouldn't say that any were terrible to my knowledge, but clearly there was a narrative out there with regards to the Rockets not being especially player or agent friendly, at least, that that the Stone administration is trying to improve upon. And I saw some people on Twitter speculating, well, could they have gotten a second round pick if they traded him at the deadline last year or during the offseason? Look, I just think you get to a point with a guy like House to where – if we're talking about a protected second round pick and conversely you can give him the benefit of now being able to be a free agent basically you know he can pick a spot that is advantageous to him because with all these COVID absences there's so many hardship opportunities right now and the thing about these hardship offers the guys that sign hardships oftentimes are going to get to play immediately because it's a hardship for a reason. Those guys are dying, those teams, that is, for minutes to be filled. So it's a good move by the Rockets from a PR perspective. Let him pick his next destination. And to me, you know, seeing the Rockets get that sort of PR, not really amongst fans, but more about agents, seeing the Rockets as a player-friendly organization, doing the right thing, to me that's more worthwhile than, you know, trying to drive a hard bargain and getting a second-run pick, but sending him 
to somewhere that he doesn't want to be and isn't going to be an op- you know isn't going to get a big opportunity to me there's value in doing right by the player and that's why i have no regrets over you know i've seen some hemming and hawing over oh you know could they have gotten a small asset you know when we're talking about assets that small i would say there's value in doing right by the player too yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that is them trying to do right by the player and how much of that is they just couldn't even get that small asset because the guy's Maybe. value was at rock bottom. Maybe. And listen, I don't, I don't have many thoughts on Trevlin Queen. I, I watched a little bit of a little bit of him after Houston signed him to that two-way, read about him some, uh, wrote about him for clutch points, and that's all I have, honestly. What we know is that he's like a big scoring guard who can like, who many yep. feel can become like a nice three and D guy eventually, but he's not there yet. It's it's a it's a decent it's a decent bet that Houston is making, I guess. Yeah, and he plays with a lot of pace, which is something that you can see is really a, a clear emphasis and makes sense this year now that. Uh, it's something that I think you especially want to see once you get KPJ and Jalen Green back, which it sounds like isn't too far away. Uh, we first heard, by the way, that Jalen was, according to Steven Silas, he was the first of the injured three. At the time, it was three, uh, Jalen, House, and KPJ. Now, House is no more. But actually, according to Silas, it was Jalen that would be back first. And now there was a report from Kelly Eco of The Athletic that they're targeting the 27th potentially, which is basically a week from now, for KPJ's return. So assuming what Silas said holds, maybe you see Jalen Green towards the end of this coming week or early the following week. It shouldn't be far away. I mean, it's been basically a month already. Of course, they're going to be careful. But the point is, to get back to what we were saying as far as Shevlin Queen and uh, Garrison Matthews and all the things they put together, they want to be able to play with pace. That's how you bring out the best in these young guys. So I don't know that Queen gets that many minutes right away unless everybody's hurt, which they sort of are at the moment. So we'll see if he gets some minutes here or there, foul trouble. The Rockets, knock on wood, have not had any health and safety protocol absences yet. Hopefully that continues, but you never know. Um, but yeah, athlete, long, can play with pace. Those are all things that they want. And as with a lot of these three D guys, it's going to come down to does he make enough threes and does he have a quick enough release to eventually fit into that Garrison Matthews and uh, Armani Brooks type mold that we were talking about earlier. So let's talk about the reason I brought you on. Um, so basically since March of last year, I have entertained the idea of Houston trading Christian Wood because it just feels like the next logical step for them as an organization. And the basic premise was at the start of next season, he's going to be 27 years old and on the last year of his contract, looking to demand an uncomfortable amount of money in 2023. And the bulk of Houston's remaining core is going to be under 20, under 23 years old and still on their rookie deals. So the timelines don't match up. I really like Christian Wood as a player, but I think he's reached about 85 to 90% of his capability. I don't look at him and see raw talent with upward mobility. I see polished. I see a polished offensive big who's good enough to start on a championship caliber team, but not good enough to demand the max deal that he can earn in 2023. And he's healthy. He has multiple years remaining right now, and he's producing at a high level on offense. So I believe Houston is better off selling him while he's at the peak of his value. And that was my basic premise with Wood. So let's start there before we get into the Shingoon stuff, because there's a, I think that's, okay. another, that's another layer to this conversation. Um, but um, when I had you on the show before, you didn't agree with that premise, um, and, you, and you kind of explained why in the past. Do you want to run through why? With regards to Shingoon, you mean? Or no, no, no. no. We're, we're putting Shingoon to the side. Just let's talk okay, about Wood okay. for now. Okay, starting with Christian's contract. Yeah. Yeah, so first off, He's 26, but he's a young 26. So I, I know I know you're mainly talking about the contractual timeline, but just want to talk about the ages. I want to clarify that 
very quickly. The 26 from Christian Wood is not the same as, say, Jalen Green will be when he's 26, basically starting at 19 years old and logging heavy NBA minutes. Because Christian bounced around the league for so many years. This is basically just his second season as a regular starter. The Rockets signed him after just that 13-game run, or I think it was about 13, uh, to end the COVID-shortened regular season for the Pistons a couple of years back. So his 26 is a little bit younger. I think he's a guy who can age well into his 30s. And in terms of, I guess, his contractual fit, I would agree with you. If he can get the max, they're probably better off trading him. But everybody says that, you know, you, you ask them, and this is one of the things that really bothers me some about the framing of Christian Wood at least on Twitter, a lot of people get bothered with these quotes where he says, you know, I think I can be an all-star. Well, guess what? 99% of the time he says that after someone asks him specifically, do you think you're an all-star? What the heck is he supposed to say? And I feel like on Twitter people, you know, say, oh, so-and-so is not saying that. Well, they're not asked. And this Max Player thing, I remember this. It was after the Minnesota game. They went up against Carl Anthony Towns last year. Someone asked him. Do you think you can be a max player? So in some of these, I would not take them at face value. Some of these are, you have to consider the context of when the statement is given. And I would agree with you that he's probably not a positive trade value guy. And that's the big thing for me if he's actually at the max. Well, right right, right now he is a tra- positive. You're talking about later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yes, if he's at the max. I'm just saying I'm not willing to concede 100% that, hey, his next deal is going to be at the max. I mean, a lot of people say that. Uh, I would agree with you. His play is not... At that level and i'm just saying i'm not willing to assume that at this point in time and i think you can have some conversations between uh christian and especially his agent and try to feel out exactly where they see his market at and whether there's a deal to be had the reason i'm open-minded to it again i'm not saying that he's a foundational piece i think we're in alignment that he's a good to very good starter and he can be maybe the third best player on a contender if you i don't know if you have the you know, a true top five guy in the league, maybe Christian can be your second best player. And that's if you're lucky, in my opinion. But at a bare minimum, he is a good starter. He's someone that I think defensively has taken more strides than I expected this year, too. So I guess the way I'm looking at it, we're seeing a fundamental change, in my opinion, with the NBA market and fewer and fewer stars are actually hitting free agency. So the way I think Raphael Stone is looking at this It's less about cap space, and it's more about cap flexibility in terms of if, say, Zion Williamson finds a way to get out of New Orleans. And this is just a hypothetical. There could be someone else in the months ahead. I'm just focusing on Zion because he's the guy that everybody talks about right now. Could you offload enough salaries you know, theoretically, if he was a free agent, but in many cases, it's not even so much you want to sign him as a free agent. It's just you need the leverage of potentially being able to do that because then the, t- the team is more likely to sort of work with you on a deal. And so the reason I'm bringing this up in the context of Christian Wood, the decision on whether I would bring him back, even if it puts the Rockets over the salary cap, if I feel pretty confident that his next deal is going to have positive trade value. I, I could offload him without having to give up a lot of assets to do so if need be, if you know one of these big names comes on the market, then I would give it to him. He's a good enough player. Again, he's not perfect by any means. I'm not sitting here trying to tell you that Christian Wood is going to be the best player on a contender or anything crazy. I'm just saying there's enough there, and I think his age, he's a little younger than you might think at first glance in terms of the NBA mileage or 
or lack thereof. If his next deal would have positive trade value, I would be I would be open to it. And I guess the, the final point that I would make on this, I would urge people to remember that the sample on Christian is still relatively small. I would say you almost have to throw out the first 17 games of this season because the, the Wood Tice grouping was just terrible. The spacing was total nonsense. That was awful. And last year, you know, even with the hardened debacle, the chaos, and everything that resulted from his departure, before he sprained his ankle, the Rockets were 11 and 10. They had a winning record. And, you know, these last 13 games, since they finally gave up on the Tice front court, they're 9 and 4. That's a pretty big sample that when you have a healthy Christian Wood and a system that's not uh, basically working against him, that he can be a big contributor to winning, even without another superstar, which they have not really had other than a few games of uh, mentally checked out James Harden at the very start of last year. So I guess what I would say, I'm not saying hands down, give Christian Wood his next contract. All I'm saying is that I'm curious. I don't think any deal is going to happen until closer to the trade deadline anyway. So I'm just saying let's use this time to our advantage if you're the Rockets and study, see what his contributions are, what a properly optimized Christian Wood can give you, what it looks like when Christian Wood plays next to Shingun, which I know we'll talk about in a minute. All I'm saying is keep an open mind because he's a good enough player to where if you could get him on a positive trade value deal, even if it temporarily means you're above the salary cap or prevents you from having cap space, I don't really think that's the big model anymore for how NBA players, big ones at least, change teams anyway. I think it's more about can you have flexibility if needed and and maybe maybe Christian becomes the guy that you could then insert in a package as a quality player that a guy offloading a star, uh, a team offloading a star would be interested in. But yeah, to me, that's the way to look at it is, is that next deal positive trade value? So in my opinion, you have conversations with Wood's agent behind the scenes. You start to feel them out. You closely monitor the next six weeks of games to see if these trends from the last couple of weeks continue. Not saying that they won't move wood. They easily could. It would not shock me. All I'm saying is I think I have a more open mind to it than some. Keeping yeah, and, him that is. And, and this, this is where I land with things. When I look at that 2023 free agent class, I, do, I, I don't think... I, I think wood ends up getting being one of those players that's overpaid because of how that 23 2023 class is shaping up right now um and i just i just can't like if if i'm houston like you only get you only get a chance to sign a max player for the first time once especially now that they you know they, they're hang they're handcuffed to john wall right like they're they're just they're only gonna have 2023 and that's it uh so if when i used to entertain the idea of houston keeping christian wood what i always said was that if you if you can't find anybody, you know, if, if you just strike out on all your intended targets in 2023, he is not the he is not the worst backup plan. And mm-hmm. I have since decided that I, I'm not even there yet. Like I, I think I've only intensified my my feelings have only intensified about this, uh, and that's because of Alper and Shingun. And we'll get to that part of the discussion now. Okay. So. Again, I was talking about Houston potentially trading Wood at last year's deadline, long before they traded for Alper mm-hmm. and Shingun. 
And Shangun was one of my favorite players in the draft. I had him seventh on my board. And what I said at the time of the draft was I thought he had the floor of a starting caliber center in the NBA with the ceiling of one day, but potentially becoming a star player. And everything I've seen since that, since then has only made me lean towards that ceiling. Um, in 15 minutes bursts, in 15 minute bursts, he's showing legitimate flashes of potentially being a franchise cornerstone type player. And the only real roadblock to him receiving proper minutes, uh, receiving the proper minutes he deserves is Christian Wood. So my feelings about disagree Houston. Well, we'll get into that. So my feelings okay. about Houston moving Wood have not changed, but intensified since Shangun has come on. Um, I think this dude is one of the three best players on the team. I think he deserves to start. And I view both Shangun and Wood like they're optimized positions in the NBA as centers. How do you want to respond to that? I guess you want to start with Shangun and Wood playing together. Yeah. So the first thing I would point out, and this is going to make me very unpopular on Rockets Twitter, but it annoys me to no end when people extrapolate the Shangun numbers and ignore the context. Because in many cases, it's like they look for the worst in Christian Wood and the best in Shingoon and take that version and make it seem representative without looking at the individual situations. And the reality, you can point to a possession here or there. Let's use the Milwaukee game because that was the one that everybody wanted Shingoon to play for because in his minutes, he dominated. He didn't play in the fourth quarter and Christian went a little ISO heavy down the stretch. Everyone was upset at him. Okay. Shingun did back down Giannis and go through him that one time. He also had the vast majority of his possessions against Boogie Cousins, who is not a passable defender anymore at the NBA level. And that's part of his incredible efficiency. The Rockets are cherry-picking his matchups. It's sort of the opposite of Jalen Green, in that Jalen Green has been very inefficient, but the Rockets are basically letting him sink or swim. And to my understanding, that's how Jalen wants it as well, go up against the best. If the Rockets were to cherry-pick Jalen Green's minutes off the bench, largely against backups, and let him go all out for certain bursts, then yeah, he could have numbers a lot better than he does. With Shingun, that's something they're doing, turning him loose for about 15 minutes a game, largely against backups. Yes, you can point to a couple of plays here or there against the likes of Giannis or Jokic or whoever it may be, but you can't extrapolate and just assume that production is going to hold if he plays 30 or 35 minutes. There's also the issue of fouling. To this point, he racks up fouls so, so quickly. And the final point, as far as Shingun and Wood, I'm not convinced they can't play together. I think that's something that's an emphasis. We saw it starting in the Orlando game, which was the first Friday of uh, December. They have made a greater emphasis to play Christian Wood and Alfred Shingun together. The two exceptions were the Milwaukee game, and I think that's a clear outlier because Giannis is an absolute freak, and they're worried about Shingun being able to defend him and what the matchups on that end would look like. And the Brooklyn game where, well, number one, they were winning. You're not going to change up what's working. And two, Shingun wasn't playing well that game. Other than that, at least for a few minutes every night, you are seeing Wood and Shingun playing together. And you are seeing Shingun have his minutes bumped up from 12 to 20 to now he's often playing in the 20 to 25 range. Even got to 28 in the game in Cleveland, but of course that was garbage time. But I do think that they are being responsible in how they boost his minutes. I think they see he needs more time. I I agree with you in terms of him being a potential star, but I don't think between the defensive issues, and I think John Lucas was right in putting that out after the Cleveland game, I don't think he's someone that should be playing 35 minutes a game right now. I think you can responsibly play him 20 to 25. And the point that I would make, 
I think you should use these games, and this is what they're doing, to provide more data. I, all I would say to you, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I would not jump to that conclusion yet. I would use these next six weeks to see how he plays next to Christian Wood. On paper, he has – I'm talking about Shingun here. He has the three-point range. Uh, well, the, the first month of the year he did, he slumped the past few weeks. But assuming he can get that back, he has the shooting. He has the passing. He has attributes that Daniel Tice did not. That gives me some hope that maybe they can play well together. As far as playing two bigs, look, the NBA is a league where you can often zig when other teams zag. And we saw everyone during the draft process try and argue that, oh, it's a guards league. And look at how to start the year. The, the impact guys are the bigs, Evan Mobley and obviously Shingun here. The league is constantly changing. And I'm not willing to say that, well because the league is turning smaller, that Shingun and Wood can't play well together. I mean, Wood has a lot of athleticism. He can shoot from three. Shingun is comfortable operating from the high post behind the three-point arc. He can create his own offense off the dribble. He can pass. It may not work, but all I'm saying is that, and they've started doing this over the last two and a half weeks, I would let them try it. To me, that's sort of what the next six weeks are for. I'm not advocating for locking in and saying, I believe in Christian Wood, that I believe that you can make this work. All I'm saying is that I think it makes sense over the next six weeks or so, you can experiment with Wood and Shingun together. You can look at, you know, obviously the wins and losses. How much does Christian Wood and his current role optimized, not next to Daniel Tice, contribute to winning? I guess what I would say isn't so much that I think you're wrong. I think you could be right. I would just use these next six weeks to sort of evaluate the data points. And then once we get to early February and the February 10th trade deadline, that's when you potentially can make a decision. You don't have to because Wood is under contract for next season. You could revisit the market in the summer. Uh, but potentially February 10th, in my opinion, that's the soonest that I think you would make a decision. So all I would say is that my view isn't so much that I disagree with you. I would just use the next five to six weeks to evaluate more data points because Christian Wood is not going to say he's a special player, but he's a good enough player to where I'm not willing to jump to those conclusions. I'm willing to give it more time to see how uh, this pairing with Shingun works to see how, you know, the, obviously the wins and losses go with regards to, optimizing wood a lot better than he was earlier this season just let more data points roll in so a few things there uh number one i, I was never one of those guys who said it's a guards league around the draft i i you know you and yeah, i were, you were team mobley i know that i'm talking generally yes, yeah, yeah we yeah. were both mobley mob right right um is, is, is that what it was it was it was it mob yep okay it, was mobley mob. Yep. it didn't feel like a mob it felt like a tribe it felt like yes. a very small amount of people but um and uh, number two, uh, the data point, I, I, I'm, I'm going to get to the data point in a second. I actually was going to bring that up. So friend of the pod, Jonathan Fagan of the Houston Chronicle, wrote this December 15th trade deadline piece about the Rockets. And he talked about how Houston is like listening to offers for Christian Wood, but they're not actually, they're not actively shopping him because they believe he can be a part of their long-term core. Uh, they think his timeline aligns with fine with everyone else. And fair enough, that if that's what they believe, that's what they believe. But if we are to believe that Shingun is a part is also a part of their long-term core, which I think is safe to assume at this point. Yes. That means they organizationally believe that Shingun and Wood can play next to each other in the front court. 
And this is kind of where I disagree with them. Because listen, yes, the two have decent chemistry together. Wood is always an active cutter on the floor when Shigun has the ball. Like, that's that's apparent at this point. Like, he was one of the first to gain that chemistry with He's been very accommodating to, to Shengun. Uh, he's he's talked about him glowingly during press conferences. Like, the two like each other, right? Yeah. I, I, this is not me trying to create a rift that's not there. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Uh, I'm just talking logically. Um, it's also possible that the five-man units with those two together, like, together don't work, even if they have good chemistry together. Uh, let me explain. Like, fundamentally, I just don't believe that Wood and Shengun as a defensive combo in the front court can work. Uh, one of those dudes is always going to have to defend power forwards, and I think that's a recipe for disaster against some of the power forwards in the league today, especially come playoff time where teams, like, start to hunt those matchups. Also, offensively, I think both of those guys operate best in the paint, like Shengun from the post and Wood as a very capable screen, yeah, as a roller, as, as a screen and dive guy. Like those are their best spots on the floor. And yes, Wood can be a floor spacer, but you're te- you're taking him out of what he does best, which is pick and roll. He is not a pick and pop big man that can pick and roll. He is a pick and roll big man that can pick and pop. Like I think he is so much stronger at that than anything else he does on the floor. And unless Shingun becomes an awesome shooter as well, which is possible because I do believe in his form, there's always going to be an extra big sagging back to help on Wood on those pick and rolls. And in transition, having both of those guys out there on offense or defense is going to be troublesome to say the least. So I just don't believe in that lineup as much as they do. Yeah, I would just let it play out. That's why I actually caught myself when I was talking about Shingun as a shooter because the first month of the season was really encouraging from that standpoint the last month has not and i think him being a capable three-point shooter is a big part of the formula for the reasons that you laid out i guess it's sort of one of those things that's important to keep in the back of your mind but ultimately the situation is probably going to resolve itself anyway because i just don't see a deal really getting to the finish line until closer to the deadline anyway and so now that you know, assuming knock on wood that these guys stay healthy and in the lineup, you can get more data points over the next six weeks. We can see that, as we said earlier, the Rockets are prioritizing at least experimenting with those Shingun wood lineups a bit more. And so I think it's one of those things you might be right with your prediction. I would just like to see it play out. And the good news is that I would guess that at the soonest, you would trade Christian Wood. It'd be the deadline. So maybe the data shows itself by early February that that's the case anyway. And, and yeah, and the data point was going to be my next point. I forgot to say it. So, uh, listen, if they do believe Shengun and Wood can be a part of their long-term core, well, then they better take the opportunity over the, the next six weeks to yes, see as much of them together as you possibly can. That means Silas has to play these twos together and see how often yep. they like see how often it can get to the green because to. Yep. Um, to their credit, it's jumped from a negative 12.9 per 100 possession since the last time I checked to a negative 10. So mm-hmm. they've played better as of late, but we need a greater sample size than 200 minutes to make it make a clear determination. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Feb- February 15th is, will be here before you know it, and then you won't get to sell on wood at his highest point because next year he'll be on an expiring contract, so you won't get as much for him in return. And I, I guess I'm, I still remain skeptical, but I do think these next six weeks, like that, those, those Wood and Shengun lineups, that's going to be the most important data Houston collects all season, right up there with yep. how Jalen Green performs and how Alper and Shengun perform. How yep. Shengun and Wood perform together is so determinative to, the, to what they're going to do in the future. They need to figure out if that's yep. going to work. Yep, the two far and away leading storylines to watch in every game 
well, particularly once Jalen Green gets back. Number one, the Shingun Wood pairing, how that goes. And number two, does Jalen Green have the uptick now that there's the floor spacing? Does he have in the second half of his rookie season the Anthony Edwards breakout or at least the start of a breakout? Because we did not see Jalen Green with the floor spacing. Well, we actually saw it for one quarter against the Poles. They looked really good with it. But yeah, the Jalen Green spacing and Wood Shingun, those are the two far and away in the grand scheme. Those are the two biggest storylines. And listen, I'm open to admitting I was wrong about this. If those line, if those lineups end up in the green, I'll come on here and admit I was wrong. I've done that in the past. I have no problem doing it. I just think fans should try and not get too attached to players during this rebuild because if the Rockets are going to get back to being a championship caliber team, the front office is going to have to be cold and calculating about all this. Like I remember Absolutely. when. And like I remember when the Rockets had like 25-year-old Kyle Lowry and he was like this fringe all-star type player and the fan, the fan base fell in love with him. And then one summer, Maury flips him for a first rounder because it got him closer to trading for that franchise player and people freaked yep. out. Like people freaked out and they got upset. Uh, but that was kind of Maury's ethos. Like he was calculating about this stuff and viewed everything in the prism of trying to build a title contender. And for what it's worth, calculating does seem to be a part of Rafael Stone's reputation. Like the stuff coming out about how they were willing to get uncomfortable uh, to for the best deal for James Harden is kind of in line with that kind of mentality. He was a part of this front office while Maury was there. So he, you know, it's possible he is that same kind of ruthless, cold and calculating guy. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. Like it, it really does inform how we view them moving forward. Like how Rafael Stone operates at the trade deadline. Like if, if he goes for like a full teardown. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting year, especially with how well they've played over the last month because that adds new layers to it because you have to balance what you're seeing now versus, of course, what it means with regards to your draft pick. They're not going to outright tank, but clearly uh, these are the two years, 2022 and 2023, that they have full control of their pick. So that's something that, at least to some level, they want to control. Now, as I said before, you don't have to outright tank because you know if you win by playing your large, uh, largely your younger players, which is what they've done, then... At the end of the day, that means that some of these guys are better assets than you had thought in terms of how you put this eventual playoff and contending puzzle together. We talked about Garrison Matthews winning off the podcast. He's made a clear contribution to winning. Yeah, maybe you dampen your pick odds a little bit, but finding guys like Matthews that can clearly be a fit for you, there's value in that too. So that's sort of the line that he's going to have to walk. And I'm very sort of intrigued to see what, uh, side of the fence he goes especially once we get past the trade deadline i think definitely they'll move eric gordon they'll move dj dj augustine the true veterans but then with the rest of that roster how do they balance what just purely doing everything they can to win basketball games now versus experimentation we talked about what they need to see from wooden shangun from jalen and then ultimately balancing i guess wins in the short term versus maximizing the assets of those picks that's the thing that certainly on a day-to-day basis steven silas is going to be making those decisions but rifle stone is going to be guiding them as well certainly as input silas and also the moves he makes at the deadline or doesn't make are going to play into that as well yeah, and listen, if you're like a like a smart Rockets fan, which you know most people listen to this podcast are, uh, because this is a diehard show. But like, if if you're one of those fans, right, and you're someone who like cringes at every win, right, I don't think that should be your immediate reaction because I do think winning 
increases the value of all your assets. So if you're like if you're like that cold calculating diehard fan, right? Like you should be happy when they win a bunch a bunch of games and their assets look better for trade because they get more valuable and you you get some you get more in return. I think this is one of those seasons where maximizing asset value is actually one of the few times you'll get to do this because if they if they end up being a really bad team next year without Eric Gordon, without some of the veterans that are that are on this team right now, like they're not going to have that opportunity to maximize their asset value. So like this is this is like the perfect season to do to kind of split the baby, you know. Yep, I agree. And it's, of course, a lot of people are stuck in the mindset of the pre-revamped lottery in terms of the odds. I think this is another one where, from the Rockets' perspective, a year ago it was very important to get every last number because of the possibility that you could fall all the way from 5 to 18 or perhaps even 20 at some point. It looked like the Miami pick might not even be at 18. Now, I think, since you control that regardless and you could move up from pretty far back in the lottery with the odds. I mean, we saw it with Cleveland and Toronto this past year. Then I don't think that they're looking at every last percentage. Do you finish at seven or do you finish at eight in regards to a hypothetical, uh, you know, tankathon odds chart? I think they see a much more big picture you know, balance. They see it as part of a puzzle, I guess is the way I should frame it. And they see benefits from, especially if, again, you win with some of these guys and it improves their trade value, or in the case of Garrison Matthews, it makes them more of a long-term fit with you, someone that you believe that could be a role player on your next contender a few years down the road. Uh, Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with you on that point. You don't need to look at it as just strictly about the, the draft pick. It's about a balance between the two. It's okay to be happy when the Rockets win games. Yes. Like it's okay. G- yes. g- give yourself permission to do so. Like like yes. it's I don't think you should expect them to win games, but when they do win games, like uh, like allow yourself to be pleasant pleasantly surprised, you know? Yes. Um yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Ben. Tell the tell the people where we can follow you on social media and read your work. Yep, at Ben Jubos on Twitter, the Rocketswire on Twitter and rocketswire.usatoday.com. All right, I'll talk to you down the road, man. Thanks for having me.